0: Today I am joined by conductor Ryan McAdams. Ryan conducts contemporary music, symphonic work, and opera internationally and is the principal conductor of the Crash Ensemble, Ireland's premier contemporary music ensemble. We talk about the myth of the ideal conductor, and how it glorifies destructive lifestyles such as living in isolation, constant striving for perfectionism, appearing omniscient, and hiding all human vulnerabilities. In order to manage these so-called professional standards, Ryan believes that many conductors turn towards self-destructive and destructive behaviors and he shares some of his own personal struggles with excessive behavior, especially surrounding food. Lastly, Ryan has wonderful suggestions about how we can open up the dialogue in conservatory around mental health and the arts. Hi, Ryan.
1: (laughs) Hi, Julia. (laughs) Nice to meet you.
0: So you're a conductor. I am. And I'm curious, as we talk about mental health and different challenges in our industry, what are the unique experiences of a conductor? And are there particular myths and um, ideas of what a conductor should or should not be that have impacted you as you've developed as a musician?
1: I wanna be clear off the bat that in talking about, I think the very particular uh, difficulties of, of the profession, that um, I'm, not, I'm not asking anyone to feel bad for conductors. <laughs> like we are, <laughs> we are in general, uh, a, a pretty privileged bunch. I mean, also obviously, I'm the whitest, straightest dude, so you know, I, I have that those privileges uh, inherent in me as well. Yes. So uh, any difficulty that I talk about here, we just have to multiply it exponentially for 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 non-white, non-male conductors in, in this profession. I, I don't want to suggest that the job, like in and of itself, creates mental illness, but I do think that there's a lot about the job that that can inflame pre-existing issues it's so not talked about at any part of the process it feels like it shouldn't be discussed because it feels like talking about mental illness with conductors means that it's somehow that's antagonistic to what leadership should be that it's synonymous with um with weakness in some way you know and no teacher i have ever encountered talked about how to cope with the, the 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 psychological difficulties of the job and so the implication was always if you struggle or, or are negatively affected by any part of the, the, the job, then you just shouldn't do the job. You're just not cut out to do the job. Right. Um, and so when you're young, and of course you're struggling with whatever it is that you're struggling with, um, you hide that away or you pretend that you know what you're doing. And there's a lot of anxiety baked into acknowledging what feels like weakness. You know, I mean, when Sarah, when Sarah, Kirkland Snyder set this up there was a big voice in my head that said oh no don't talk about this stuff and honestly it was recognizing that that voice existed in me and that there was anxiety attached to it that is the thing that convinced me to to talk about it I was like well if, if if me at almost 40 in my level of comfort with my with my work and with my mental health and the work I've done, if I still have this voice in the back of my head that says, I'm gonna damage something about how people perceive me or my career by talking about how I've kept myself healthy, that's reason enough to have the conversation. I think that there are two issues in talking about, about being a conductor when you're young. One is is the archetype of the conductor that we receive when we're young. It's either just, Subconscious from from the culture, or or we, we mythologize, or or hero worship, and then also from teachers and the, and the the training that I received as a teacher uh, from from teachers about what this job looks like, what how I'm supposed to behave, how I'm supposed to cope with it. And I think that archetype is so impossible to live up to that it it it, it can only result in a kind of self-destructive self-image, hmm.
0: um,
1: especially when you're young.
0: Can you just? Uh, remind us (laughs) what are the the archetypes uh that are impossible to live up to
1: a conductor is someone who knows all the answers and uh has this grand vision for how to lead 150 people through some immense piece of musical architecture um they have to know how absolutely every little note is to be played how to accomplish it technically on every instrument um but also that they're this kind of charisma factory and they have all this natural authority and then that that sort of X factor of 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 celebrity, you know. You think about right. the the mythos that built up around von Karajan and Bernstein and and Furtwangler. You know, these 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 people who seem to exist in in my head as sort of stone busts in the concert hall. Um, you know, these are people who struggled enormously with mental health, but because that would seem to suggest that they had weaknesses, instead of recognizing that those um, those behaviors were problematic or emblematic of of a kind of self-destructive self-image. Um, we tend to romanticize that behavior right. um, and and somehow attach it to that total not totally nonsense concept of greatness, which is you know connected to toxicity and su- white supremacy and and, yes. and and misogyny and patriarchy and every other terrible thing. Right. When you're 20 years old and you're in your first or second year of conducting, because that's usually when conductors in America start to be able to get in front of an orchestra. number mm. of times I heard as a student, oh, con- orchestras will judge you as a conductor in the first two minutes that you're on the podium. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard that from, from both conducting teachers and from orchestral players. And re- regardless of the truth of that statement, it's an extraordinarily abusive thing yeah. to tell a 20-year-old to tell someone in the first or second year of their career that you have two minutes to prove to yourself, oh, you're going to be, you're going to be written out. This messaging that the orchestra is inherently an antagonist um, is, is so in, was at least for me as a young conductor, so part of the, so much part of the training. And then the anxiety and insecurity that that generates is so unhelpful um, and, and really destructive, especially to someone who's You know, to musicians like us, who who probably already feel a little bit like outsiders. So how, what do you do to combat the stress and anxiety of that? Um, Well, no one was talking about it. People just sort of assumed that if, if you were challenged by it in a, in a publicly, in a demonstrable way, that meant you were not, um, you weren't capable. And so what do you do? You sit around and you mythologize and talk about the the terrible self-destructive behaviors that your heroes uh, participated in. You know, like when you when when all of us were oh, I mean like, you know, when we're sitting around and talking about when you're 20 and sitting around the barbecue place at Aspen with your other, you know, alpha male conductor colleagues and you're talking about Bernstein, you're not talking about his mother, you're talking about you know the the time he showed up at a party with a minor league baseball player he picked up on the road, or you know the number of kids Fred Fongler had, or the alcoholism that ran through everybody. As if that excessive behavior was a character of greatness in some way, which is which is a terrible message to internalize when you're really young.
0: Excessive behavior and and also repressive, right? Like oh. repressing desires or needs.
1: I think that excessive behavior can be inward destructive or externally destructive sure. um you know the externally destructive ones are maintained by organizations that try to cover it up for the for the 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 monsters <laughs> that lurk yes. in the shadows um or hide in plain sight um but the internally destructive ones are much harder to 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 help um right. especially because you're taught to keep yourself kind of isolated from from the orchestra and from the people around you um, you know, one of one of my conducting teachers, a wonderful conducting teacher, told me when I was 22, 23, that his number one piece of advice for young conductors was uh, don't let the mystery go. Don't reveal too much about yourself. Don't make yourself too vulnerable. They will fill in what they don't know about you with greatness. And it was a way of of prolonging this uh, this this hero worship and mythology that I think just is is at the end far more destructive than than helpful to anybody you yeah. know. But also when you're young, if you if you do translate that anxiety or if you struggle with mental health and you use self destructive or repressive behavior to cope with that anxiety, because the story is oh my great heroes have all of the success behavior. On some level, it's actually reinforcing that, you're, that you belong in this position, this, right. this profession. You feel like you're living up to the job that you've chosen. Oh, look how much I'm self-harming in any number of ways.
0: Right, I'm um, miserable, so I must be great, you know? Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly, you know, I mean, I remember growing up when I was like 10 or 11, and there were some very challenging things that happened to me when I was a child. Um, and there was a little part of my brain that went, well, this will be the first chapter of my biography.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember as a child uh, thinking, I want to be happy, but if I have days where I'm not happy, at least that will make me a better artist.
1: Right. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that you know, oh, there's there's a deep romance to suffering and trauma when right. you're young. And I think it's a coping mechanism. I mean, there's a narcissism about it, too, but it's more... Yes. It's a, there's more of a coping mechanism of well I'm going through this because it's it's transforming me into the, the the phoenix that will rise one day and I think as a result we get terrified of of letting go of this trauma and this pain because it means somehow our superpowers might go away right um, and the truth is there's it's it's nonsense um, right. You know, I mean, we think about all the great leaders, I mean, conducting is kind of a, is a leadership position. Think mm-hmm. about all the great leaders who have had terrible excessive behavior and terrible mental health struggles. And, you know, getting help for those would not have endangered their leadership capacity in any way.
0: No, it would have. I mean, I think it would have strengthened. It strengthens leadership.
1: But... Of course, because you have you have the capacity for empathy. So it's such a fundamental uh, ingredient to love. And really being a conductor is about it's about loving every single part of the job. I remember James Conlon came to Aspen one summer and I asked him, I said, you know, what does it take to be an opera conductor? And he said, oh, it's actually really quite easy. You just have to love music and you have to love poetry and you have to love theater and you have to love set design and you have to love dance and you have to love the orchestra and you have to love singers. Yeah. And I said, "And you have to love all of those with your whole heart. And if you do that, then you can be an opera conductor. and um and I remember thinking at the time like oh, I really do love all of that so maybe this will work out but the reality is none of that love works without empathy and if you have if you have shut yourself down to the whatever self-destructive self-image or or behaviors that you're that you're trying to wrestle with or or push into the shadows then you're shutting yourself from from your own self-compassion and from your own vulnerability and you can't can't really create trust or intimacy with anyone especially right. you know not an opera singer who has to go up and do tosca for the first time and is uh terrified uh, you know and needs to feel safe and that someone understands what they're going through you know everything about this job is about is about building trust um and if they don't feel that there's an empathic person behind those behind those eyes and behind the podium it, it, there's then it doesn't get anywhere
0: yeah the performance suffers the music suffers
1: Well, and the relationships suffer. And I think that the relationships that I have with the people that I work with have to be sustainable. They have to be sustained. They have to be nourishing.
0: What do you define as excessive behaviors? What do you mean by
1: that? I mean, for me, I've struggled with, um, with compulsive overeating my whole life. And it was something that I developed when I was 12 or 13 years old, you know, I, I, I mean, there's a lot about my, my childhood that I'm not going to talk about publicly yet, but um, there were parts of it that were very difficult and the coping mechanism, the only coping mechanism that I had besides isolation um, for the stress of a lot of what was going on then um, was food, which I didn't think twice about, you know, if I was going to go to a place that had stress, I would uh, grab a bite to eat and that would sort of fortify me, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand at the time that eating in large amounts was had a narcotic effect, you know, that it, it all the blood rushes to your stomach and then you're kind of stoned, for lack of a better word, for a while. And you, you get kind of numb to the, to the world and to your own emotional track. And then you go in and do the stressful thing. And then when you leave, there'd be food to, to, to reward you. And I didn't think twice about this when I was 12. And then without thinking about it, that just became the way I cope with stress. A lot of my young life and then at a certain point th- the lengths that i had to go in order to stay in shape in order to um, fit into my clothes in order to not be tremendously body conscious all the time i mean conducting you are it's a very physical profession and right. so you're conscious of your body all the time you're in front of people because you're moving and you want to feel good in your body you want to feel strong you don't want to feel like you have to hide away from anybody if, if you have that that kind of dysmorphia about yourself when you're younger um it can be really all-encompassing it can really take your focus away from the work that you're trying to do and the relationship you're trying to build um so at some point i kind of identified like oh food is something that i really i i work with i mean i think probably the best way i can answer it is is to sort of paint you a picture of what your life is like when you're 23 or 24 and you're and you're conducting for the first time so you have this so you're you're going out into the world you're doing these individual concerts with orchestras when you're young you're doing concerts that by and large the orchestra may not be thrilled to be doing in the first place you're doing family concerts pops concerts film concerts you've been taught that the orchestra is inherently antagonistic to you that they're going to judge you in the first two minutes you've only been conducting for three years and do i go out and see the town while i'm there am i you know, am I doing yoga and meditating and, and having a therapy session to get through it? No, of course not. I'm, I'm managing that anxiety in the only way that I know how, which is that I never leave the hotel room. I order as much room service as I can get. And I overwork, I overprepare. I study into the wee hours of the morning. I barely sleep. I know exactly how many minutes it is from my hotel room to the podium. And I give myself one extra minute than that to get down there. Get on the podium start the rehearsal as soon as the rehearsal's over i get off the podium i go back up to the hotel room and that was how i managed that stress for the first five or six years of my work and i probably think a lot of other young conductors do it as well because the isolation is not something that you're taught about mm-hmm. when you're young um, the isolation of traveling to all these different places and being completely alone there were so many cities that i never saw when i was went there the first time because i was so consumed with how are the first two minutes gonna go? Am I gonna make this easy for them? Are they gonna like me? Are they gonna re-invite me? It's perpetual auditioning. You know, I remember I this this Mozart marathon concert, I got up there and I poured everything I had into making it the most streamlined, efficient rehearsal that I possibly can. And I remember at the end of the first rehearsal, I walked out by the trumpets. Oh, Mozart trumpets have it bad. Anyway, <laughs> but... Um, but I remember as I walked by, one of the trumpets looked to the other player and just, like, did the pistol to the temple sign, like he just wanted to end it all. And right in front of me, and I just thought, I'm stuck in a no-win situation for the rest of my life. Like, this is, I'm getting nothing from this experience. And so, how do you manage the anxiety? Well, you, I manage it by being very performative, by eating, by... um correcting that eating by working out to preposterous degrees Mm -hmm. Um, and that was what I did and that didn't stop until I really actively found a therapist and and did a program and 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 found a therapist who specialized in trauma I can so easily imagine how it can spiral into any direction right um into substance abuse or sexual abuse or uh issues of control or violence or self-violence I mean it's and it's and again nobody will will come to you and try to make an intervention with you because it's part of this excessive um glamour that surrounds what conductors are supposed to be um
0: so you were never taught that failure was part of the creative process
1: Uh, you're not really taught that conducting is even a creative profession I became a conductor in some way to be of service to try to to make a space for others in which they can um, they can perform at their best and to facilitate their artistry and also then to walk into the room with something that with with an understanding of the score that I that I deeply believe in down to my bones that then I have to to not surrender but back away from a little bit in order to allow the orchestra to to come to me and show me how they think about the piece. But your yeah. question about being creative is, is such an interesting one. No, there's, there's no room for failure. I remember it, I, sitting at, I remember at Aspen in my 20s, one of the conductors was talking about a rehearsal they had just done and he said, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I totally threw an air ball on this one thing, meaning I, I gave a cue a bar early. And we all of course said, oh, it happens all the time. Don't worry about it. And as soon as he was out of the room, all the other conductors, and I, I have to say probably I did as well, went, oh, you, you just don't make mistakes as a conductor. That's just not acceptable.
0: What would you like to share with us about your own journey towards getting healthier and sort of shedding this myth?
1: My late 20s were a very turbulent time. I was, I was overworked and overcommitted on almost every front. I was pushing myself beyond my own limits and overworking um, because that just felt like what successful musicians did. I had no mechanism for self-care at all. Um, it just felt thrilling to be in demand. I had not taken any stock of, of the, the, the more destructive coping mechanisms that had been with me since childhood. And I was finding every opportunity to, to isolate myself and, and spend time alone, which um, was reasonably terrible for my relationships. And and then it's at a certain point I realized oh there's this has to be dealt with in a very specific way, Um, and I found a therapist. And to this day I don't kind of understand why everyone isn't in therapy. It's like such a I know it's it just seems it's it to me it should be as routine as getting your yearly checkup at the doctor. I mean it's just it 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 should be such an important thing. And it took I will say it took a couple of therapists. I I cycled through a few before I found someone that really knew how to do the work for me. And I remember the revelatory moment in one of my sessions is when she said to me, you can't use your your ego to heal yourself.
0: Hmm.
1: And it stopped me so cold. And she said, Ryan, you understand yourself very well. You could write a whole book about every little thing that you do, because this is what you do for a living. You analyze and you are prepared to explain and describe in great detail who you are and what you believe in, none of that understanding actually will help you heal anything. You can't use your intellect and your strengths to do the healing work. Right. And it made me so angry. <laughs> I was so angry about it because it just was, uh, I didn't want to hear it. Because it again, it, it goes back to this sense of, well, if I don't have the right skills, then I just need to get the right skills. But instead you just actually have to live in the pain and you have to 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 go back you have to recognize when that scar tissue is being is being triggered and recognize it in the moment and be able to to choose behaviors and coping behaviors that allow you to be functional. Um, and to, to, to heal yourself. And then eventually that intense reaction, that trauma reaction um, dissipates and fades over time. But it, it requires sitting in that pain for, for quite a, a, a good chunk of time. So doing that and, you know, for a little bit of time, I worked a 12-step program around, uh, around eating and it was a very helpful psychology for me. Um, More than almost anything else, it just was such an exercise in empathy, because if you've ever ever been in a 12-step program, you are in a room with people where you are hearing, to a cellular level, your story come out of the mouth of someone who you would believe you have nothing in common with. Mm. Um, And that was was a profound education in in compassion and self-compassion. And I think it made me a much better conductor. And it was, I think, somewhere along the lines where I realized that the archetype that I had been carrying around was so poisonous to my system, and that I wasn't an alpha personality, that I wasn't this ambition-craving, control-craving person. And And because that archetype was so deeply embedded in me, the first thought that arose when I had that realization about myself was, oh, maybe I don't get to be a conductor. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> maybe that maybe yeah. I'm actually not fit for the job. Right. But then I couldn't think of anything else. I wanted to do more. And so then it became about, well, then how do I make sure that I'm in rooms with people who won't expect me to emulate type because I'm in a position of power in almost any room that I'm in, I was able to make decisions about how I was going to operate in those rooms to see how people would respond to someone who was just going to be very honest and very vulnerable about the things that might be perceived as as not weakness but just being a human being so i didn't grow up in an orchestra i grew up in a theater and in a theater you make a temporary family where you support each other and create trust and and try to build stuff together And that's what I wanted. I wanted to feel part of a team. And so that's what I try to build whenever I'm in a room. About two years ago, a few months after my son was born, I was doing an opera in in Turin at a major opera house. And I just said, my wife and son are going to come in and sit in the corner. And they're just going to play. I wasn't going to pretend that I didn't have a family and a life. Right. Um, And also, I was going to make space in any room that I needed for my family to be able to exist and be near me. Because I needed them around.
0: Right. And if he Um, makes noise, he makes noise.
1: When I've done engagements and I come away from them, my first question is not, did I do a good job? Did the concert go well? Um, Because there's a lot of that that I've learned I can't really perceive. I can only say, was I able to be in, was I able to fully be myself in the room? Did I feel like there was an expectation for me to operate in a different way that didn't feel authentic to myself, including being open and vulnerable and questioning and curious? Did I feel like it lived up to the standards that I have? And if I felt like that wasn't part of the conversation, if I didn't feel like there was a team, then I'm at a point in my career, I'm lucky enough to be at a point in my career where I say, I don't think I'll go back even if they want me back. And I seek out ensembles and organizations where I feel at home. The idea of jet setting, the idea of having multiple jobs in different cities, I, I know it works for a lot of conductors and a lot of friends of mine, um, but it will just never feel satisfying to me. Yeah. So
0: what are your thoughts on how some of these conversations can shift? What can be done on the conservatory level or in the workplace?
1: Well, it's a huge question. Mm-hmm. What I do know is that the best conducting teachers that I've ever encountered are essentially therapists because the job is, the, there's the basic mechanics of stick technique, which are different for everybody. You can learn them in a minute. And then everything else from then on is just figuring out, oh, I did this and they responded in this way. How do I process that? How do I, how do I figure out what they need so that I change what I need to do? A friend of mine um, defined this once for me, that the process of getting to a basic level of competence as a conductor is a six-year process. It's two years to figure out how your hands work. It's two years to be able to hear what's in front of you and not what's in your head. And then another two years to figure out how to rehearse. When you see these young superstar conductors who are in their early 20s come out of nowhere, almost always, 99% of the time, they were in a position where they started to conduct when they were 14 or 15. I I was lucky to have James DePriest at Juilliard who was an active professional conductor who was able to say, if you do that in front of the London Symphony, they're never gonna invite you back who were able to say, here's how you use language. Here's how you structure reversal. That stuff was really important to me, but I will say that the most important work is to say, how are you communicating? What are the barriers to that communication to the people in front of you? And being a conductor is about having an awareness of how everything you do and say and speak and move affects another person.
0: So that's how it's like therapy. And therapist.
1: so in some ways it is like therapy because yeah. it's about how do you communicate with people? How do you get the best out of them? How do you communicate clearly what you need? How do you resolve conflicts that are two miles away? How do you see them right. coming down the road? And then to have a deeper conversation about about communication and insecurity. And also any of that has to come with a conversation about how challenging these early years of being a conductor really are. Yeah. Um, and then of course there just has to be larger conversations about vulnerability and the fact that vulnerability is not antagonistic to, to leadership, that you can be your full self with, as a conductor with your colleagues, with your orchestra players and not um, sacrifice respect.
0: You can say um, you don't think... know the answer to a question. right? Yeah,
1: or to take responsibility. I remember when I was at Aspen, I had this horrible thing of, of whenever a, someone in the orchestra would make a mistake, I was so desperate to show everybody that I heard it I was 20 that I would like glare at them. <laughs> like I would just do it automatically, even like closest friends. I would just look at them like, Ugh. and, and I remember David Zidman came up to me and he said, he he said, whenever that happens, just look at them and smile because it, it it it's so forgiving. Everyone makes mistakes, but they'll still know that you heard it, but just be, but be welcoming. The amount of trust that I've earned from, a, from From an orchestra where maybe i haven't given something shown something as clearly as i wanted to or i wasn't with them when when they needed me to and just without stopping the rehearsal just go you know that's on me immediately that that level of trust is established because they're aware that i'm aware that was never taught to me as a student it was never demonstrated to me so i think that creating a dialogue in which young people are, are are taught to look at the knowledge that they don't possess as an opportunity to go on an adventure <laughs> mm-hmm. of 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 gaining knowledge and asking questions and not being afraid to the best conversations i've ever had about music bar none have been with principal players who have stuck around with me after rehearsal talking to me about all the conductors they they played uh, tchaikovsky four under and here's what they learned from, from them and here's how they think about their pieces. I was just in, I just made my debut with BBC Philharmonic a couple of weeks ago. And during my concert, a, a, a member of the second violinist, the second violins retired. He had been in the orchestra for over 50 years and he stood up and he gave this beautiful speech in which he revealed that he had worked with Copeland and Dutia and Messiaen and as soon as that rehearsal was over as soon as the concert was over i went up to him and the first thing i said was first of all what an honor that i got to be your last conductor in this i'm 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 this is extraordinary but also do you have 15 minutes to just sit down with me and tell me as many stories as you can fit into 15 minutes <laughs> and he was so delighted um and and most most musicians will be so excited to be able to talk about how their instrument works, how they think about the art, what they're struggling with, what they're being challenged by, so that 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 knowledge and information and empathy is is disseminated.
0: And it's very important for composers as well. I mean, I feel like a lot of what you're saying applies for composers, you know, to yeah. go go up to musicians at the end of rehearsal and ask them if they have feedback for you.
1: Yeah if you sit there with a lack of knowledge and don't feel like you're allowed to go and seek it, then you're just, you're living in the shame of your limitedness uh, mm-hmm. for for a long time to come. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I mean, I, again, I just think everybody should be in therapy. Um, it just, <laughs> I do this too. Doesn't, this <laughs> doesn't feel like a radical. Personal
0: thing. bias, but. <laughs> um,
1: no, but I mean, I just, I, I don't, I don't see how it could do anything but benefits. I grew up with parents who were of that generation that like, you know, the Woody Allen generation sure. where it's just only, only neurotics go to therapists or you only go to a therapist to deal with a singular issue like the death of a parent, and then you work through that and then you're done. And then you right. go back on living your life. But um, that just feels crazy to me when there's an opportunity to talk to someone on a regular basis about how you're processing um, stress and insecurity and uncertainty and success and being able to live in a moderate way in an extreme profession. When when we see students who are idolizing um, or, or mythologizing problematic models, I think we have to get in there and say, let's have a really serious conversation about what you're mythologizing, what you're romanticizing. Let me show you models of conductors who are, um, who maintain uh, really a, a, a strong mental health and are also exceptional leaders and i was just going to say one more thing and this is just a general uh statement to to all young conductors which is i think there has to be a physical practice in your life in some way your mind and your body will move at a million miles an hour when you're in front of the orchestra and actually being a little tired from a run or a workout slows you down to a pace at least it does for me slows me down to a pace where i can hook onto the wavelength of, of an orchestra and, and and be able to judge when they start to be tired or when they need to be navigated into a different area. It was a revelation for me when I did uh, Donika Dennehy's opera a couple years ago, and the sta- it was a 75-minute opera, but we had five weeks of staging. And I was like, why do we need five weeks to stage a three-person or four-person 70-minute opera? And I realized that Enda only worked from like 11 a.m. to 4 and would not work outside of it because he, one, he wanted to like have a normal human life outside of work, but also he only wanted people when they were at their best. Mm. And as a result, we never got to the point where we associated doing this very difficult piece with exhaustion.
0: Yeah. What kind of strategies or routines do you have now? I mean, so you have a, do you have a premiere tomorrow or first rehearsal?
1: First rehearsal tomorrow.
0: Tomorrow. So yeah. like, what do you do now, now that you're, you're in a hotel room, you're,
1: it's your really, way. It's, it's, it's been really challenging because, um, I didn't work for 11 months. Yeah. And when I came back, I had a series of concerts in Italy because of the quarantine rules. I couldn't leave the country and my wife and son couldn't come with me. So all of a sudden, after being with my wife and son for every single day for 11 months, I was looking at two months away from them. And what I wasn't prepared for was that it immediately shoved me back into Being a young conductor in 22 being isolated in the hotel room having no structure being unsure of trying to remember how to do this job being unsure of who i was as an artist now after all that time and all of my old coping mechanisms came back right you know i i ate tremendously i i was isolated for a long period of time um and i had to kind of write myself the pandemic was a traumatic event for everybody and so all of our even the, the 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 mental health issues that we may have some degree of awareness and and understanding around have probably been exploded or or yes. at least a, a, a exaggerated. When I got back from those two months, I was I felt awful in my body. I felt sort of out of control in a way that I hadn't felt in since I was in my mid twenties. So I just got really ruthless about it, and I sat down and had a couple of therapy sessions about. It. How am I going to structure this time when I'm isolated? The first thing I do is I schedule Skype and Zoom calls with friends. And I make sure that I am engaging with people who are close to me. I'm going to make sure that I get up with my wife and son at 6 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. when they wake up and, and say good morning to him every day. I, I try to replicate the routines that I have when I'm home so that I don't just feel shot into space. Um, I have a physical practice, I work out every morning. I really plan out food in advance. I know what sure. I'm going to eat. Um, I, If there are restaurants I love ordering from, I make a plan about what I'm going to do long before I get to the point where I'm hungry. I make sure I keep my therapy sessions every week. And then I'm really structured about how I study. But I have to say that the best decision I ever made as for myself was to actively seek out spaces where, um, where I could be where I could work in the way that I wanted to work which was collectively
0: so if listeners want to find you and um connect with you hear your recordings where can they go
1: well um you can go to my website ryan-mcadams.com um I'm on twitter uh, more than I probably should be I'm I'm certainly on instagram um you can just send me an email at you know my my the The email address on my website is my email address. So please feel free, um, especially any young conductors who might be listening to this, if you have questions or concerns, like I just am always available for those those conversations.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing so much of yourself and your thoughts and being so honest.
1: It was wonderful to talk about this stuff with you. I've never talked about this stuff publicly, and it's um, it can be quite frightening, but it's 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 thrilling to do.
0: I'm so grateful to Ryan for joining us and being so open about his own personal journey towards mental health and physical health while he's maintaining a demanding career as an international conductor. I think it's so important to remember that there is no one way to be an artist, to be a conductor, to be a composer or performer. You can really create the artistic life that you envision for yourself. And if it in any way conflicts with your mental or physical well-being, it is so important to address that and make sure that you always put your health first. If you have the passion to become an artist or a writer of any kind, please don't let any teacher tell you that you're not cut out for it um, because most likely that has something to do with that own teacher's problems and is not a reflection on you. So thank you for listening and uh, thank you, Ryan, for being with us today. Thank you for listening to Loose Leaf Notebook. I'm Julia Adolph and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work, Dark Sand Sifting Light, performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert, conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music, you can visit my website at juliaadolph.com or my YouTube channel, which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again!